Thank you for joining us today for this service at First Baptist Church of Douglas, Georgia. Know that you can join us on campus every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. for small group Bible study and at 10.45 a.m. and 6 p.m. for our worship services. We offer ministries for preschool, children, and students. You can visit us online at fbcdouglas.com. Now join us in our services already underway. Would you take your Bibles and open them to the book of Judges? We are traveling through the Testaments tonight, and we've reached a book that is really not uh, the most glamorous book, to say the least, in the Bible. It is filled with treachery and violence and uh, ungodliness. And if you want to discover what a nation in decline looks like, the book of Judges is the place to go to study. Uh, so I hate to bear bad news for you tonight, but it's important to understand what's in this book so that uh, hopefully we can discern the times in which we live. And you'll see a lot of parallels between the book of Judges and uh, America today. Uh, most likely I'm going to be preaching through this book next year. So uh, I hope that uh, you read through it and prepare yourself for that. And I think in light of the times in which we live, it will be a proper thing to do. Well, tonight we begin by looking at the characteristics of the book of Judges. You'll see the title comes from the military leaders that God used to deliver Israel from her enemies. God raised up these judges to execute judgment on behalf of his people. So these military individuals, these leaders, were called judges. So that's a little different from what we understand judges to be in our day. But they were called judges. And God used them in a powerful way for his people's sake. The author of the book of judges is unknown however an examination of evidence within the book is valuable in determining the date of the writing in judges chapter 17 verse 6 chapter 21 verse 25 the statement in those days there was no king in Israel everyone did what was right in his own eyes reveals that Judges was written after the events recorded in the book. Most likely the writing occurred during the reign of King Saul or King David around 1050 to 1000 BC. Early Jewish scholars attribute the writing to Samuel. He was the first prophet in Israel and the one who anointed Saul as Israel's first king. It is also possible that an unknown contemporary of Samuel wrote the book. Now let's consider the setting for the book of Judges. The book of Judges records the nation's history following the death of Joshua. After Joshua and the generation that entered the promised land died out, we read in Judges chapter 2, verse 10, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. 
Now that's a very significant statement. So there rose a generation who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. How is it possible that God had blessed the nation in such a miraculous way in delivering them from Egyptian bondage after 430 years? using these ten plagues to gain their exodus out of Egypt, crossing over the Red Sea on dry ground, destroying the pursuing army of the Pharaoh, providing for this enormous group of people, somewhere around two and a half million, to eat and drink while out in the wilderness that is the desert and time and time again they disobeyed him although he gave them his words he told them what to do what he expected of them how they were to live and yet they disobeyed over and over again to the point that finally finally he had to say to them those 20 years of age and older will die in this desert your children will go into the land 40 years later God of course keeps his word they enter the land of promise they begin to divide it up to settle the land and they do not obey the Lord and drive these nations out completely and as a result they are affected by their influence and it's not long until the nation begins to rapidly decline because they have embraced the customs and practices of those who did not know the Lord. The key passage in this book is found in chapter 17, verse 6. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That's where we're living today in America. Every man is doing what is right in his own eyes. And we might wonder how is it possible that a nation as blessed as the United States, founded by people coming from this land in search of religious freedom, this nation that has always looked to the Lord and sought to provide an education for her children in the ways of the Lord. Not a perfect nation, for there is no such thing, but a nation who did at least say that it is God's Word, the Bible, that we are to follow and obey. And even people who did not believe the Bible, that is, they did not believe the God of the Bible, they still respected the Bible and saw the value of teaching it. But look at us in our day. We now live in a generation that is ignorant of God and all of his mighty works for this nation. We live among a people who are doing what is right in their own eyes. And therefore, just like the nation of Israel so long ago, we are in a state of decline, a rapid descent into the abyss after Israel experienced victories in the promised land under Joshua's leadership they failed to maintain unity after his death 
They were a divided people. We too are a divided people. We like to say we're one nation under God, but we're not. We're more like a tribal nation. A nation filled with warring parties, constantly after one another and at each other's throats. So this divided nation had a lack of devotion to God and ultimately it led to their defeat at the hands of various nations that remained in the land. These were nations that they did not drive out. These are nations they did not subdue even though God had instructed them to do so and had promised the provision necessary to do it they still didn't do it and they paid the consequence for it so what did God do? well God raised up judges to defeat specific enemies in particular areas throughout the promised land these were not national but local leaders these judges through them God provided rest for the people they were ordinary people used in extraordinary ways although these leaders displayed personal weaknesses and some of these weaknesses were great weaknesses God still used them to accomplish his purpose. This period of the judges led them into the position where they requested a king. They wanted to be like the other nations. They were not content to follow the Lord, to serve in a theocracy. So they wanted to serve a king. The heathen nations were permitted to remain in the land as an instrument for God's use in dealing with his people, the nation of Israel. Warren Wiersbe has noted the following ways God used these nations. One, to punish Israel. We see this in chapter 2, verse 3, as well as verses 20 and 21. Two, to prove Israel. Chapter 2, verse 22, and chapter 3, verse 4. Three, to provide Israel with experience in warfare. Chapter 3, verse 2. And then four, to prevent the land from becoming a wilderness. We learn this in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 20 through 24 now let's look a little closer at the purpose for the book of Judges its purpose is to provide a history of Israel's cycle of rebellion restitution or retribution I should say repentance and restoration now that's the cycle that's repeated over and over again through this book. The nation would rebel against God. God would send retribution 
He would have to punish his people. He would have to discipline them. And that would lead to their repentance and then restoration. And after a period of time, they would start the cycle again. And we wonder, how is it these people didn't learn? But we have to ask the same question of ourselves, don't we? I mean, we have their example, and we can see how it's going to end, but yet we still don't learn. We're hard-headed and hard-hearted sometimes. So, the, so this continued to occur between uh, Joshua and the monarchy under Saul and David. This record explains the early monarchy of Israel. The difficulty experienced by the nation led to its consolidation into a kingdom. So that's the first purpose of the book. We see that cycle repeated over and over again and what resulted from it. Secondly, to demonstrate that disobedience or incomplete obedience leads to oppression and bondage now I might add that really incomplete obedience is disobedience but I do want you to see a distinction there just doing partly what God tells you is not sufficient but there's a third purpose and that is to show how God brings deliverance to a repentant people God wants to deliver his people. God cares for his people. He loves the nation of Israel as he loves us today. But he wants us to repent. A re repentance means we, we're going in the wrong direction and God reveals to us our error and so we repent, we turn and go in the right direction. God responds to us when we do that and that's what we should seek to do we should seek to repent also we see the fourth purpose for the book is to demonstrate the patience and love of God to demonstrate the patience and the love of God and then the fifth thing to picture the necessity of a righteous king for God's people and of course, when we, as the church, we look on this scene, we have to say and we have to shout, Christ is our righteous King. Now let's look at an outline of the book. I call this the construction of judges. Notice, first of all, we break this down by looking at the compromise of Israel, chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 3, verse 4. And here we see Israel's conquests, chapter 1, verse 1 through verse 36. Let me read for you now from the book of Judges, chapter 1, verse 28. And this is a very important verse. It came about when Israel became strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor. But they did not drive them out completely didn't God tell them to drive them out completely didn't he warn them what would happen if they did not 
He also warned them not to associate with them, not to embrace their paganistic ways, but they did not listen. Now let's, let's look at the conquests of Israel here. First of all, we see Judah and Simeon conquer southern Canaan. You can read about that in chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. Then Benjamin fails to conquer the Jebusites in Jerusalem. You'll find that in verse 21. Manasseh and Ephraim occupy central Canaan, but keep some as slaves. Verses 22 through 29. So did you catch that? Uh, they, they occupy central Canaan, but rather than driving them out, they decided they wanted to put, put some of them in forced labor. Use them as slaves. Then notice Zebulun, Asher, and Nephtali failed to conquer northern Canaan. Rather, they enslaved them. You'll find that in chapter 1, verses 30 through 33. And then Dan's confinement to the hill country by the Amorites is spoken of in verses 34 through 36. So as you read through this portion of the book, you see clearly that they did not successfully rid the nation from these pagan peoples. These pagans who practiced immorality, who involved immorality in their uh, false worship of their idols, who even sacrificed their own children to their deities. They are allowed to stay within the land in some of these cases, and as a result, they infect the nation of Israel leading to their sinful ways as well. So notice with me Israel's corruption, chapter 2, verses 1 through chapter 3, verse 4. Now here we find in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2 the declaration of judgment. Israel made covenants with the inhabitants of the land and failed to remove their altars. Their altars were places they worshipped their false gods. So what we find here is compromise and corruption. And then we see the death of Joshua is mentioned and the older generation pass on. Chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. Let me read again verse 10 for you. I read this earlier, but it bears repeating. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. What a tragedy. Then we see the description of Israel's cycle of sin. It's mentioned in chapter 2, verses 11 through 19. And uh, I alluded to it in chapter 3 earlier. The rebellion in chapter 3, verse 7. Retribution, chapter 3, verse 8. Repentance, chapter 3, verse 9. And then restoration, 
chapter 3, verse 10. Well, it's mentioned as well uh, here in chapter 2 as we're looking at now the outline of, of the book. And as I mentioned a couple of other times, it is repeated over and over again by the way that they practiced their lives before the Lord. And this leads to the difficulty that God inflicts upon his people in order to test them. You can read about that in chapter 2, verse 20, through chapter 3, verse 4. Now let's look at the champions of Israel. The champions are uh, the judges. I'm just using the word champion here because they served as champions of the people and certain locations. We see, first of all, Judge Othniel delivers from the oppression of Cushan Rishathaim. Chapter 3, verse 7 through 11. So God used him to, to relieve his people from their oppression. And then we see Judge Ehud delivers from the oppression of Eglon, chapter 3, verse 12 through 30. Then Judge Shemgar delivers from the oppression of the Philistines, chapter 3, verse 31. Judge Deborah and Barak deliver from the oppression of the Canaanites, chapter 4, verse 1 through chapter 5, verse 31. Then Judge Gideon delivers from the oppression of the Midianites, chapter 6, verse 1 through chapter 8, verse 32. And I wish we had time to develop all of these areas where these judges uh, ruled and used their military prowess to relieve the Israelites from their oppression, but uh, we'll have to save that for another day. But I do want to elaborate uh, some on uh, the judges, Abimelech, Tola, and Jer, who deliver the people from the men of Shechem. And I want to I do this because really Abimelech, some people consider him a judge and some consider him not to be a judge. I guess we could say he was a quasi-judge uh, in that uh, he was able to deliver um, the people from the oppression of the Shechemites, but it was not necessarily his intention to do so. He was one of the sons of Gideon. Uh, Gideon had a lot of sons because he had several wives. He had 70 sons, and then he also had a son by a concubine from Shechem. His name was Abimelech. Once Gideon died, Abimelech was able to connect with his mother's family in Shechem and convince them to help him to assassinate his brothers. So he was able to assassinate 69 of the 70 brothers. One escaped. And by force, he ruled Israel for three years. And um, God moved among the Shechemites, causing a 
conflict between Abimelech and Shechem. And so they devised a plan to kill him. They were going to ambush him. Well, he learns about the plan. He is able to get uh, the people corralled into a tower. He begins to cut down trees and drag the tre uh, trees around this tower and he gets his troops to do so to help him and he sets it on fire, kills a thousand men and women. He goes to Thebes and there he gets too close to the city wall and a woman in the city drops an upper millstone on his head. An upper millstone was around 18 inches across. It crushed his skull. Now, he didn't die immediately. His greatest concern was that he would be known for being killed by a woman. So he asked his armor bearer to thrust him through with a sword, which he did. That's how he died. But God even though this man was a wicked vile man notice how God works all things out for good for those who love God and who are the called according to his purpose even this man's wickedness God was able to turn and bring some good out of it along with Tola and Jer delivered the people from the men of Shechem who were oppressing them. Chapter 9, verse 1 through chapter 10, verse 5. Then we come to uh, other judges. Jephna, Ebzeb, Ebzen, Elon, and Abdon deliver from the oppression of the Ammonites. Chapter 10, verse 6 through chapter 12, verse 15. And then we, we come to the judge I'm sure you're familiar with by the name of Samson who delivers from the oppression of the Philistines chapter 13 verse 1 through chapter 16 verse 31. And uh, what, a, what a story this is. I wish we had time to delve into it, but we don't. So that, can, uh, that covers the champions of Israel and we can say that there are at least 12, if not 13, if you consider Abimelech, who served as these great military leaders and helped the nation to gain some sort of freedom from their oppressors during this time of disobedience and wickedness of God's people. Now, once again, though, we see corruption rearing its head in the nation. Notice the corruption of Israel, chapter 17, verse 1 through chapter 21 verse 25 here is Israel's idolatry on display chapter 17 verse 1 through chapter 18 verse 31 it comes in the form of the idolatry of Micah the Ephraimite chapter 17 verses 1 through 13 and, uh, and then we see the idolatry of Dan Dan was one of the tribes remember chapter 18 verses 1 through 31 so they delve into idolatry which is a displeasure to the Lord and a, it's a, a sordid story there and a very interesting one and one from which we can learn much 
But that's not all. Then we see Israel's immorality. And by the way, always remember that idolatry and immorality go hand in hand. Idolatry and immorality go hand in hand. Whenever you worship false gods, idolatry is always in play. And we see that lived out on the pages of Scripture over and over again. One such place is chapter 19, verses 1 through 30. And, and this is a story that, that is so evil and detestable, it, it really gives me pause to mention it. it it's a very um, difficult uh, and dark tale that happened in the nation's history. But we can learn some things from it, so let's look at it. First of all, chapter 19, verses 1 and 2, we see the departure of a concubine. Now, what does this mean? Well, there's a man who has a concubine, and uh, he doesn't treat her well. So she flees from his house, and she goes to stay with her father. Well, he misses her, and he wants to get her back, so he makes the long trip all the way uh, to find his concubine. And once he finds her, uh, he wants her to come back and be with him, to stay with him again. And so he stays at her father's house for, for a while, and, and uh, she is convinced to go back with him. And there's a delayed return. Every time they start to leave, her father says, no, stay. Stay just a little longer. So, so they do. They stay a little longer. And finally, they, uh, they are convinced he is that it's time to go. I'm, we must leave. And so he gets his stuff. He takes his concubine. And they leave heading home. On their way home, however, they have to stay the night in one of the cities. And it is a city like, like you could say that many of our cities, unfortunately, have become here in America is a very dangerous place filled with people without morals filled with people without any type of conscience because their consciences have been seared they are hard hearted and lack no compassion filled with lust and uh, the practice of immorality so what happens is the men of the city come and it's a, it's a similar sort of description of what you would find in the book of Genesis, when the men gather around the house of Lot and they begin to bang on the door because they want to know the men sexually. Which is a strict violation of the Word of God. Well, this happens. And so what occurs is the concubine is released through the door and given over to these vile men these wicked men and they defile her through the night and you can read about that in chapter 19 verses 22 through 26 well the next morning when the man comes out how could he have slept is the question I ask but he comes out and he finds the concubine there at the door now, the Bible does not explicitly say that she's dead, 
it is assumed that that is the case that the, the death of the concubine occurred in the course of the night chapter 19 verse 27 through 28 so what does this man do he does something that is horrid he, he does something that is hard for us to even grasp any type of a person that has any uh, morality at all or any consciousness any conviction any compassion at all would find difficult to do but he dismembers his concubine you can read about this if you'd like in chapter 19 verses 29 and 30 he dismembers her he he cuts her into 12 pieces and he sends her these 12 pieces throughout the nation to all 12 tribes when this happens it, it shocks the people they cannot believe that the nation has sunk to such a low place morally and spiritually you know there are certain things that happen in our country that at least for a brief time we're, we're kind of shaken have you ever noticed that uh, you hear a story in the news and you think, how could that happen? And, and you're appalled by it. I feel like we, we've come to the place in this country where we've heard so many stories that are so morbid and wicked that we have become, to some degree, desensitized. Where we're not bothered anymore. Well, this is one of those stories that that was just so extreme that when these tribes saw what had been sent to them the various parts of this woman's body they were deeply concerned greatly grieved and they wanted to find out what happened they learned of the story and so they demanded that the tribe of Benjamin turn over these vile men now, now you would think in a sane society that, that uh, the people would want to rid themselves of such evil and people who would practice such ungodliness and wickedness and lawlessness. But surprisingly, the tribe of Benjamin refused to turn them over. So, that, so we see here Israel's anarchy. Chapter 20, verses 1 through chapter 21 verse 25 and so what happens is that the the tribes come together and they demand of Benjamin that tribe that these men be released they would not be released so they said if you don't do it we're going to attack you and they did and they did not fare very well Benjamin defended themselves quite well and this caused them great alarm and they cried out to the Lord for God to intervene and help them and so ultimately he does and we see the tribe of, of Benjamin is punished chapter 20 verses 1 through 48 to such a degree that it almost eradicates the tribe itself I mean they kill so many men they're just just a few men left of this this whole tribe and so they come up with a means of, of preserving this tribe which is 
which in itself is, is hard to understand of, of what they did. And I, I don't have time to go into it all tonight, but I will just say that uh, the tribe was preserved. But all of this is an indictment on the nation as a whole of just how far they had strayed from the Lord, how wicked they had become. And, and friends, when you, when you listen to the news, when you, when you hear about these stories that's happening, not randomly anymore, but regularly, across our country, uh, we should be shocked. And we should say we're not going to tolerate this anymore. Any nation that allows this type of thing, this type of atrocity to occur and these horrid things to happen is a nation that is far from God. Is a nation that is in deep need of repentance. And that was true of the nation of Israel. So what do we conclude from this book? Let's look at a number of things here quickly. First of all, God requires complete obedience. God requires complete obedience. God is not content with us obeying Him partially. Secondly, God is the one true God and He alone deserves our worship. God will not settle for half-hearted worship. God has no rivals. He demands our loyalty and our devotion. And He deserves it. Third, sin leads to destruction. There are no exceptions to this truth. Sin always leads to death. Now, you may be sitting here tonight and you may think, well, you know, I've got some things going on in my life. I seem to be doing pretty good. The story is not over yet. Sin leads to destruction. The fourth thing, God disciplines his people when they disobey. God disciplines his people when they disobey. It seems to me, from studying the scripture and from just experience in life, that whenever we sin, God convicts. When we refuse to repent, God chastens. When we continue to refuse to repent, God calls home. God disciplines his people. And then finally, another conclusion of the book of Judges, confession and repentance lead to restoration. Confession and repentance lead to restoration. And that's a good word to end on. That when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, as dark and gloomy as the book of Judges is, 
you'll be happy to know that next week we will be looking into the book of Ruth. And what you'll find is that the clouds are going to part and the, the sun is going to shine again. And it's going to be like taking a shower after we get out of Judges and go into the book of Ruth. So it'll be a much more pleasant experience next Sunday night, and I hope you'll be here. We pray that you have been blessed by this message today. You can find out more information about this and other messages, as well as our church, at fbcdouglas.com. You may reach out to us online through our website or visit us in person at 124 North Gaskin Avenue, Douglas, Georgia. We at First Baptist Church of Douglas are striving to love God, love others, and make disciples. Until next time, God bless.